Before we begin this edition of Tim Talks Politics Podcast, I just want to let you know, if you are interested in supporting the podcast in any active way, there are two ways you can do that that I'd greatly appreciate. First off, if you would be up for giving us a review on any uh, podcast platforms that you're listening to this podcast on, that really helps the show in terms of gaining us more visibility and, and just increasing our reach and spread. And secondly, if you're more interested in supporting the podcast and the work I do at TimTalksPolitics.com financially, you can do that a variety of ways as well. I really work hard to make sure that this is a podcast and newsletter that is devoid of all kinds of sponsored content and ads, mostly because they get really distracting and I want to keep things focused on the conversation. But that does mean that we have to offset costs other ways. So if you're interested in financially supporting Tim Talks Politics, either the podcast, the website, the newsletter, there's a variety of ways in which you can do that. You can go to our podcast website at anchor.fm backslash Tim Talks Politics and click on support. Or you can subscribe to the premium weekly newsletter, The Weekly Brief, by going to timtalkspolitics.com backslash weekly brief and subscribing there. Either way, it'd be great to per- partner with you in advancing the work of Tim Talks Politics and in bring- continuing to bring content and insight and information into our information cycle. So thanks for your support. Now let's get started. Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Today, we're going to be talking about America's relations with its longtime rival, Russia. That's right. We are talking about the motherland. We are talking about the Russian bear. We're talking about how America has gone about relating to this enigma of a country. So that's uh, the overarching uh, theme of today's podcast. But before I dive into that, I do want to let you know that after this podcast, we're going to take a break from foreign policy and international relations, and we're going to kind of segue into a summer series. And this summer series is really going to be focused on, and it's going to actually go into the fall, uh, it's going to be focused on just America's political system. So we're going to start by looking at uh, looking at the American Constitution. Kind of last year, I did a read-through and commentary on the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to do the same with the American Constitution. Uh, I'm probably the the Articles of Confederation as well, which was kind of like our Constitution 1.0, I guess you could say. And then uh, and then what we'll do is we'll build into a discussion on different elements of American politics, political parties, elections, because this is an election year. And to go with that, I've already uh, recorded a interview with a Harvard professor on one of our political parties, and I hope to do uh, more on other political parties as well. So I'm just really excited about the upcoming episodes uh, for Tim Talks Politics podcast. Uh, it will be a little bit of a change of pace from what I've been doing so far uh, for the first section of this uh, year, this season of the podcast, but but in keeping uh, with the general mission of Tim Talks Politics, which is to uh, deepen our understanding of politics, government, America's place in the world, our concepts of citizenship and all that good stuff. So I'm really excited to dive into that. But 
let's, uh, that's just to, I guess, whet your appetite for that. But right now, let's talk Russia. So how are we to talk about American and Russian relationships? Well, there's a couple of different ways in which we can think of that. But similar to what I do with the episodes on China and Iran, I want to kind of start big picture by looking at where do American foreign policy experts and leaders generally agree when it comes to thinking about Russia. And then we're going to kind of parse out certain disagreements. And then what I'm going to do is look at kind of the major pieces of U.S.-Russia relations, particularly in the last hundred years. And we'll also try to uh, take a look at, like I've done with China and Russia, looking at the Russian perspective. How does Russia view the United States? And there's uh, the the cool thing we have here is that uh, Russian diplomats have actually taken to the pages of American newspapers and magazines to actually be pretty specific about how America, how Russia views America. So we actually have some really good documentation on that, and I'll be sure to share that as well. So lots of good stuff in this episode. Uh, strap yourselves in. Let's uh, let's start with talking about where do leaders agree on Russia. Well, the first part that American leaders and foreign policy experts generally seem to have some agreement is that Russia is generally not to be trusted. Where there's disagreement is kind of assessing just how bad the mistrust is, like how bad are our our relations. So while much has been made about you know the alleged collusion with Russia um, by the Trump administration, the 2017 national security strategy cited Russia as a competitor, cited Russia as a problem country. And the Trump administration, for all intents and purposes, hasn't really backed away from that categorization of Russia. Congress and the president's foreign policy team have worked together to uh, sanction Russian political bosses and political leaders. Uh, They've worked to support Ukraine, uh, increasing uh, military aid to that uh, beleaguered country to include lethal military aid, which was kind of, you might say, a minor escalation uh, in relations with, uh, with Russia. So uh, this, there's been some pretty notable elements in our uh, relations with Russia where the Trump administration, for all its early um, affinity, you might say, for Putin, uh, really seems to have pushed back in a real politique way uh, on some notable pieces. So it's a mixed bag. Uh, there definitely is disagreement over just how how serious a threat Russia is. Uh, you can obviously uh, hear uh, plenty of uh, plenty of reporting done on Russia's ongoing uh, cyber attacks and cyber warfare and information warfare uh, work that they do, not just in the United States, but they've also been, uh, been deploying quite a bit of this uh, in other Western democracies, particularly in Western Europe. And we'll get into why they do that and, uh, and how that kind of isn't that different from traditional Russian uh, real politique uh, over t- over history and through time. But, uh, but for now, let's take a look at, uh, let's kind of springboard out of this general kind of agreement that Russia is a problem country, but maybe some disagreement over how best to approach that problem. Uh, there's those who want to have a more active uh, pushback on Russia and those who are kind of like, ah, they're kind of like just an oversized mosquito. We can, uh, we can work without bothering with them too much. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the general division when it comes to Russian relations. There's a lot of unity on the fact that Russia's a prop, Russia's a problem actor. That's uh, where there tends to be a lot of unity. So with that being said, let's take a look at some of the background of Russia and Russia-US relations. 
So there's probably a couple of things that we first have to kind of wrap our heads around when it comes to Russia. Uh, and that is that is a geographically massive country. With a relatively small population and few population centers that are very much concentrated in the western third of the country, uh, and but even then still pretty spread out. So this is a pretty, uh, in some, I won't necessarily say it's a sparsely populated country, but there are wide areas of it, particularly the eastern portions of Russia, that are sparsely populated. What does this mean for Russia strategically? Well, what it means is that Russia in many respects, has a very strong sense of insecurity, uh, you know, literal insecurity, uh, because they have this huge landmass with very long borders, with numerous countries uh, that they have not always enjoyed friendly relations with. Uh, so when you go back to even pre-communist days, when you go back to the the czardom of uh, Russia, when you go back to the rule of the czars, uh, you see a general... Uh, sense of a very strong sense of insecurity vis-a-vis uh, -vis Western Europe and Western European powers, uh, probably most notably in wars with uh, Poland, with wars with uh, Prussia, wars with uh, France and the invasion in 1812 by Napoleon. Uh, and, and this was just one front in, or one area of Russian borders. Farther south, you had ongoing border confrontations and wars with the Ottoman Empire, and back east, numerous border uh, wars with uh, different uh, Chinese governments. So long-standing uh, border issues and lots of invasions and counter-invasions throughout history. So it creates this, this sense of, despite its size, uh, Russia has often kind of positioned itself or seen itself in relationship to the rest of the world as being exposed, vulnerable, insecure. Uh, and this has done, this has had a couple of effects. One, it kind of creates a general sense of, okay, if someone else is gaining, we're losing. So a very zero-sum perspective in terms of how foreign policy is carried out and how relations with other countries are, are uh are carried forward. Uh, secondly, it's had the effect of entangling Russia in European power politics, uh, but having also a sizable footprint in Asia as well. So having to balance between uh, playing politics in very different geopolitical spaces and contexts uh, has been an incredible challenge. Now, these are just the uh, power politics that Russia has had to engage with with um, neighbors on its landmass to say nothing of uh, relations with uh, the United States. When we put things in that perspective, that we have a massive country that is very, uh, very diverse in its landscape, diverse in its natural resources, very wealthy in natural resources, yet still vulnerable and knowing its vulnerability uh, to invasion, uh, you have a strong sense of insecurity. And this undergirds a lot of Russian relations with other countries, particularly the United States. So how should we think about U.S.-Russia relations? Well, the first, the, the best way to think about it is that they've never really been good or close uh, in any particular way. Uh, this was prior to communism, during communism, and after the collapse of communism. One of the things that is constant in U.S.-Russia relations is that they've, they've kind of been um, sketchy at best. Uh, they've, they've rarely been close, rarely been warm, uh, 
any good relations or or interaction we've had with Russia over the years has largely been based on the rapport of critical uh, leaders. So a, a president and a czar, or a president and a uh, and a president and a president here and a president there, or something like that. Uh, there's very rarely been, or even chief diplomats, but there's very rarely been any kind of, I, I guess you could say, institutional closeness between the uh, two countries. And then, of course, you have this really big thing called the Cold War. More or less, despite a very brief period of closeness during World War II, but mostly a closeness born out of a need to survive uh, twin threats between Japan and uh, Germany, uh, what you generally have then is uh, a 40-year period following World War II, known as the Cold War, that we were ideological foes, uh, geopolitical competitors, easily the two biggest uh, dogs on the block, uh, if we're looking at the world that way. Uh, And this led to uh, 40 years of very um, suspicious, very um, angry, and oftentimes oftentimes contentious uh, relations, but clearly competitive, uh, and oftentimes getting very close to uh, armed conflict. So the Cold War definitely didn't do much to improve the already, uh, shall we say, fraught relations between the United States and Russia. Now, after the Cold War, though, there was this moment, this window uh, in the probably in the 1990s where successive American presidencies and uh, presidential administrations sought to improve relations with Russia, recognizing that despite the collapse of the Soviet Union and the diminishment of uh, Russia as a country, because remember, there's several former Soviet republics that broke off and formed their own countries. So we're talking about smaller countries, still large, still massive uh, from a geographic standpoint, still strong from a military standpoint. Uh, there, there was this desire to, you know, build closer relations, and so the Clinton, starting with the Clinton administration, uh, the Clinton administration invested large amounts of aid, political capital. Uh, support in making Russia under Boris Yeltsin a market economy, moving them towards a liberal democracy. Uh, but long story and complicated story short, that failed. Uh, and you can read more about that in detail in Michael Mandelbaum's book, uh, Mission Failure. This gets us to the turn of the 21st century uh, in 2000. 2000 is an important year because you have a changing of the guard in Russia and you have a presidential election in America. So you have George W. Bush take over as president in the United States and you have uh, Vladimir Putin uh, take over as president in Russia. Rarely do you have the opportunity to reset relations with two new leaders in the same calendar year uh, as we had with uh Putin and Bush in 2000 and 2001. Speaking of 2001, uh, the advent of America's global war on terror following the September 11th attacks uh, brought a a common security threat uh, to bear to bring Russia and America closer because Russia had uh, its own kind of war on terror that it was fighting with with radical Islamist Uh, terrorist organizations as well. And so there was kind of like a common cause, two new leaders, uh, Russia trying to move beyond its, or uh, what we believe they were moving beyond uh, their communist past and 
America looking to chart a new course forward in the post-Cold War world as well. It really seemed like an opportune moment to kind of like turn the page, start a new chapter in U.S.-Russia relations. But that failed too. Uh, Part of that was because America just misread Putin. Uh, Notably, uh, this is important because historically U.S.-Russia relations had been Um, based on the ability of heads of state in the respective countries to at least interact well together, maybe not be close friends, but at least be able to be diplomatic and be able to communicate with one another. The rise and fall of relations between America and Russia historically have been based on, uh, or have historically been pretty closely tied to the uh, personal relationship or lack of relationship between respective heads of state. So the misread of Putin is significant. Putin was seen as the uh, the handpicked successor of Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin had been generally friendly towards the United States. And so uh, coming out of the Clinton administration into the Bush administration, there was generally the assumption that like, hey, if Boris Yeltsin picked Putin, he should be an okay guy. Notably, George W. Bush, when he met Putin, uh, famously said that he had the opportunity to look the guy in the eye and see a bit of his soul. Uh, but clearly Putin has demonstrated that he is a very able political actor who's able to play weak hands effectively and who's generally able to play leaders of the free world off against each other. Uh, so to think that he was going to let anybody see inside his soul at any level is probably a, seems a trifle naive at this point, now knowing what we know now. And what do we know now? Well, what we know now is pretty soon, almost as soon as he came to power, of Vladimir Putin uh, being an ex-KJB operative uh, immediately began restructuring America, uh, restructuring uh, relations with the United States, but also restructuring relations with uh, other neighbors and with the rest of the world. He began revamping uh, Russian uh, political standing with the single-minded mission to restore uh, Russian honor, to restore Russian prestige, to restore Russian power and might uh, on the world stage, something that he saw as being um, as having taken a dramatic downturn immediately following the uh, the Cold War. And what this meant was it meant pushing back against Western expansion or what was seen as Western expansion in Eastern Europe. It meant pushing back against um, American uh, interventions in the Middle East, it meant generally pushing back. If we could sum up uh, Putin's approach to uh, geostrategic competition, uh, especially in the last 10 years, uh, it can be characterized in terms of pushing back. It started around 2008 with uh, Russian interventions in Georgia. Uh, it expanded in 2014 with the invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, and then the Uh, Russian intervention in the Syrian civil war. So over the course of the 20 years in which he's been president of Russia, Vladimir Putin has clearly adopted a policy of retrenching uh, Russian power, reestablishing Russian prestige and influence on the world stage. And uh, and to that to that extent, uh, he's been pretty successful. I certainly uh, at no time since probably the height of the Cold War have American political leaders uh, viewed Russian influence and Russian uh, Russian th- threats 
very seriously uh, as they do now, especially after Russia's intervention and interference with the 2016 presidential election. So how should we sum all of that up? We've established that while Russia is seen as a problem country by the United States, we've also shown that Russia is a large country that, despite its size, has a high amount of insecurity uh, and has generally seen itself as something of a historical punching bag to world powers throughout history, from the Mongols of the Middle Ages to Napoleon in the 19th century to uh, being locked in a life and death struggle with capitalist democratic America and its uh, Western European allies during the Cold War. So there's just generally been this sense of uh, Russia against the world, you might say. Now, there's another key element of uh, Putin's kind of revanchist approach to uh, to Russian power and politics. And that is his establishment of what could arguably call a new czardom. Uh, in many respects, Putin rules very much like the czars of the pre-communist era than he does an elected leader or even just some kind of you know, authoritarian dictator. People tend to forget that Russia is a very old country. It has a very long history. It is a uh, and that uh, that history uh, includes you know, a degree of autocratic leadership, not degree, like institutions of autocratic leadership. And so the turn towards communist dictatorship in the 20th century really wasn't a huge change in government. It was really trading one form of authoritarian uh, rule for another. You went from a czar to a communist dictatorship. And so when we look at, we need to understand that Russia's, or rather America's view of Russia, uh, especially the view that Russia could become a liberal democracy, the view that Russia could be a country that could be worked with, uh, is really influenced by some very small windows in Russian history. So the idea that we could work with Russia, even if it was communist, came from our ability to ally with them in World War II. But that's really just a four-year window, uh, maybe a five or six-year window if you want to throw Lend-Lease in there. But really, it's just a four or five-year window in the 70-year uh, period of communist uh, control of Russia. But even beyond that, over the broader span of Russian history, you really see a, uh, a very limited trade over time, uh, even during the Cold War, very limited trade. Uh, and then you also see a uh, just very different uh, political culture, a very different uh, religious culture. Uh, so there's, you know, we could say Russia and the United States both are dominantly Christian countries, but they both practice very different forms of Christianity. Russia is dominantly Eastern Orthodox. America is dominantly a mix of uh, Catholicism and Protestantism, but essentially Western Latin Christianity. So all that to say, there's um, the, oh, and then I was going to add that the other window of time in which America and Russia were seemingly cooperating was really just in the first maybe 10 years uh, after the Cold War. So what we really need to see is that oftentimes, the belief that America can work with Russia, the idea that uh, somehow we can influence them to behave differently, uh, is really based on an analysis of U.S.-Russian relations that is 
less than 20 years when you total it all up. Uh, 20 Less than 20 years of what could generally be, be called uh, positive relations with, uh, with Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. And we're talking about a country that's centuries old, that has a, uh, that has a historical memory longer than the United States has been a country. So, I mean, in that context, it's kind of, it's kind of easy to see why, uh, an author like Michael Mandelbaum, and I'll talk about him a little later, uh, would look at America's approach to, uh, Russia, particularly the liberalist approach to Russia as being very naive. Uh, and being short-sighted. The fact of the matter is, is Russia has a political culture that is based dominantly on three strands or three platforms, and that is nationalism, orthodoxy, and autocracy. There's the idea of a Russian identity, a Russian nation, uh, that's the nationalism element, and orthodoxy, uh, which is that Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and uh, Russia sees itself as being kind of like the... the the center point for that uh, branch of Christianity, and then autocracy. And this is really important for understanding the political culture of Russia, whether it's a czar or a Russian or a Soviet Politburo or Vladimir Putin, uh, it doesn't really matter in the long stretch of Russian history. There have always been autocratic rulers. Boris Yeltsin, as a democratically elected leader, was more of a, uh, was more of a, um, I'm forgetting the statistical term, but like an, an anomaly. It was he was Boris Yeltsin was an anomaly, an idea of a liberalizing uh, democratic uh, Russia in the early 1990s is essentially an anomaly in the broader sweep of Russian history. And so it's while some people would say that uh, Vladimir Putin's rise to essentially being the autocrat in chief or the dictator of Russia is a form of Russia sliding backwards. It's really just Russia returning to historical form. It's, you could argue it's a return to the norm uh, for Russia in many, many respects. And that actually should be uh, taken seriously in American foreign policy circles. But what about Russia? America sees Russia as a problem. We've had a fraught history with them. We've generally misunderstood them, particularly after the Cold War. But what about Russia? Do they understand America any better? Uh, how do they understand America? How do they view America? And for that, we actually have a pretty good documentary record, which is kind of nice to have, actually. Writing in the pages of Foreign Affairs in 2014, shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea, uh, a Russian diplomat named Alexander Lukin wrote an essay uh, in Foreign Affairs uh, explaining uh, what Russia was after, or how uh, how Russia saw the world, and the article is entitled "What What the Kremlin Is Thinking," uh, or sorry, "What Is the Kremlin Thinking?" And I'll link to it in the show notes. I highly recommend it to anyone who has ever wondered, you know, just how do we understand Russia's view of the world? How do we understand uh, Russia's approach to the U.S. and Western democracy? This is probably one of the best essays you can get to wrap your head around that. And there's basically three components to uh, to the Russian view of the world, especially a world that they see as being largely influenced and run by the United States. And it can be broken down into three broad things, NATO expansion, secular liberalism, and a rejection of liberal globalism. 
So let's uh, let's take each one one by one. Essentially, uh, one of the things that is seen as being the uh, the fundamental dividing line in U.S.-Russian relations post-Cold War, in that brief moment where there was an opening to build a better relationship with Russia, there was an opening to promote democracy, there was an opening to uh, you know, make the world safer for Russia. Uh, America fundamentally misunderstood the, the deep-seated, historically rooted uh, insecurity Russia feels and its sense of being threatened by an outside power. And yet in the 1990s, uh, the United States first promised Russia, uh, and again, I'm giving you the kind of like the Russian perspective. So I'm kind of trying to speak from that perspective. Uh, The United States promised Russia that NATO would not be expanded into Eastern Europe, into the former, uh, into the former uh, Eastern Bloc countries, so from the Baltic states down to uh, down to Albania through Poland. So uh, basically, Warsaw Pact countries would not jump from the Warsaw Pact to NATO. Uh, the United States and NATO, uh, Russia uh, believes, told them that no such eastward expansion would take place from NATO. Well, a basic uh, review of NATO history, and that would actually probably be a good podcast episode would be just to like review NATO and the NATO charter and what that's about. But uh, suffice to say, the last 20, 30 years have seen numerous rounds of uh, expansion for NATO membership, including many of the very countries uh, that Russia was concerned about becoming NATO members. Uh, the Baltic states became NATO members. Poland became a NATO member and uh, many other Eastern European countries. So from the Russian perspective, they saw this as being a fundamental breach of trust. It wasn't even a misunderstanding to them. It was just a lie. It was a uh, it was a all powerful United States Uh, just lying face-to-face to to the Russians saying, we won't do this, and then turning right around and taking advantage of uh, Russian weakness post-Cold War uh, to expand NATO at Russia's expense, leaving leaving Russia that much more exposed uh, geopolitically. So that's the first major complaint. That's the first major, um, I guess you could say, Peace that informs uh, Russian strategic thinking. The second thing is uh, that Russia saw it was a fundamental um, conflict of culture. Uh, so Samuel Huntington, his off-maligned work, uh, Clash of Civilizations, uh, identified this. He identified uh, Russia and its attendant um, allies as kind of like Eastern Orthodox or Orthodox civilization. But he distinguished it dis- uh, from Western. Uh, civilization. His his point was is that these are two uh, distinctly different cultures, and uh, Russia has more or less adopted that and made that argument, saying that the secular liberalism of the West is not how Russia historically or presently uh, wants to pursue uh, forming a political culture. Remember, I noted earlier that historically the three themes of Russian political culture have been nationalism, orthodoxy, and autocracy. Well, you just take two of those, orthodoxy and autocracy, and they clash pretty directly with secular and liberal. So uh, so there's this distinct culture clash that uh, Russians saw, and they saw out of that culture clash uh, the, the um, kind of threat of being 
deeply integrated into any uh, Western-oriented economic or political organizations. So, you know, the idea that there might be some future where the Russia would join the European Union or whether they would um, allow themselves to be more deeply integrated into the global economy uh, was you know, it's highly questionable in the Russian strategic mind just because uh, that integration often carries with it uh, secular liberal assumptions or expectations of secular liberal culture that Russia generally rejects. So f- for Russians, the their counter to that is, or rather I should say for Russian policy planners, their counter to Western liberal uh, globalization is to basically forge a Eurasian identity. So you can see this in a couple of different ways. You can see uh, you can see Russia t- turning towards China as a partner in the Eurasian region. Uh, you can see Russia working with its former uh, Soviet republics in uh, Central Asia to form some kind of similar integrated trading or economic block similar to the European Union. Uh, there's a f- several different ways in which Russia has gone about trying to uh, construct an alternative framework uh, friendlier to its interests, friendlier to its political culture than what they see as being um, the Western approach. And this makes relations with China really interesting, especially as China and America's competition and uh, and interaction kind of hits more and more crisis points uh, going forward. The open question is, will Russia and China form an alliance? Uh, if they do, it would probably be an alliance of convenience. But uh, the fact of the matter is both countries are deeply integrated, uh, Russia probably more than it would like to be, but they're both deeply integrated into the global economy and uh, gain too competitive and pushing too hard against uh, the U.S. and the European Union could have, especially in Russia's case, severe economic uh, blowback. It's already an economy under great stress, almost entirely dependent on natural resources and the export of those nat- natural resources. So, in many respects, Russia has a much weaker economy than the United than uh, than China, certainly than the United States, and they're the weaker partner. And so, it, it's it makes sense. It's easy to grasp, you know, Russia and China versus Europe and America. It, you know, it kind of is an easy way of dividing up the world, but it's a more complex picture than that, and it does. Um, it, but it does make for an interesting uh, consideration. And the fact of the matter is the two countries are working together. What we should take away from this, though, is that when it comes to Russia, they do not view the West, Europe and the United States, but particularly the United States, as entities to be trusted. Uh, in the case of Western Europe, that's a market that Russia exports to. It's a political world that they have been deeply involved with uh, for centuries. And so there's that, there's a certain live and let live give and take to that. But when it comes to the the United States and relations with the U.S., Russia is deeply suspicious of American uh, American goals, American uh, aims. Uh, they're very deeply suspicious of American intervention in any any area of the world remotely close to what Russia sees as its sphere of influence, which is namely Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and even portions of the Middle East, as we see with their involvement in Syria. So the Russian perspective when it comes to U.S.-Russian relations really sees it not just as a geopolitical 
uh, and a zero sum gain at that, but a geopolitical struggle or conflict. But they also see it as something of a culture conflict that this is a this is a culture that Russia does. You know, from the perspective of Putin and Russian leadership, this is a culture Russia does not want to emulate. Russia does not want to become, and so there's a desire to a certain extent of limiting. Um, I guess, cultural exchange, you might say. So lots of pitfalls uh, for Russia and uh, the United States, lots of uh, points of conflict for them. Uh, and it's all made worse by a general failure to understand or even really appreciate uh, the seriousness with which Russian leaders take this uh, viewpoint, this viewpoint of uh, of suspicion towards the United States, this viewpoint of seeing secular liberalism as a threat, and this uh, embrace of nationalism, orthodoxy, and autocracy as critical elements of Russian political culture. Those those pieces are not often discussed, in certainly in American media discussions of Russia, but even, even within uh, the foreign policy realm, the cultural elements that influence uh, Russian foreign policy thinking are often uh, downplayed. Um, it's easier to just think about Russia as trying to gain an advantage in any way it can vis-a-vis -vis the United States, but uh, but that often ends up verging into an into the belief that Russia is probably more powerful than it is. When in reality, uh, what we could say is that Russia is merely trying to carve out space for itself to operate safely, and it's trying to essentially. Uh, create a sense of security for itself, more important m than any almost anything else because of that fundamental sense of insecurity. So that's kind of some basic thoughts on how we can work through U.S.-Russian relations, some of the basic uh, fault lines, some of the background behind it. Uh, if you want to think more deeply about this, or especially when we think about how the United States interacts with Russia, vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Uh, a question you might want to consider or even do a little more reading and research on is the question of whether or not America can afford to just ignore Russia and concentrate on China. Uh, so that's one way of thinking about how America should position itself in the world. Is Russia really a big threat? Is China the bigger threat? Uh, should we be worried about uh, a Russia-China alliance? That's That question kind of touches on all those pieces and kind of gets at this idea of to what degree should um, we give, uh, especially American foreign policy planners and, um, and strategists, uh, to what degree should we give Russia weight in our uh, calculations? If you want to dive a little more deeply into... Russian history, uh, Russian political history, and just U.S.-Russia relations. I've got a number of uh, recommendations for you in terms of the spoken and written word uh, and the watched word, as uh, as it might as it may be. Uh, so first, uh, on the reading side, I've already mentioned Michael Mandelbaum's uh, Mission Failure. It's a great book that looks at. Uh, looks at America's post-Cold War foreign policy. And it's not just about U.S.-Russia relations. And it's probably as a critique of American foreign policy, it's a little on the pessimistic side. But the chapters on Russia are particularly helpful to understand uh, just the uh, kind of the simplicity or naivety uh, that American foreign policy thinkers approached Russia with 
uh, at immediately following the Cold War and the effects that that has had in uh, straining the relations with Russia up to this period of time. So it's, it's a book worth reading, if only uh, for those chapters and for understanding kind of where U.S.-Russian relations uh, kind of went went screwy, uh, despite having kind of a golden opportunity to, uh, you know, turn, turn a fresh page over, um, in, in that relationship. I'll also link, uh, and I'll remember, I'll recommend to you and I will link to, uh, the foreign affairs article by Alexander Luskin, uh, from on what is the Kremlin thinking? Uh, it is a wonderful read. It's really, uh, helpful and in grounding an understanding of uh, Russia and its foreign policy thinking. And that's kind of the written word. Uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to listen to some good stuff on Russia, uh, two things I would recommend here. The first is I would recommend the revolutions podcast. The revolutions podcast is a, uh, is a history podcast, uh, but uh, it's just that it's about great uh, major political revolutions uh, since essentially the American Revolution. Actually, before that, I think they even went back to the English Revolution, the English Civil War. But essentially, uh, the the author, the host, uh, Mike Duncan, has taken all the major political revolutions uh, in the Western world uh, from the modern period all the way up to uh, today. And he's currently in the midst of a series on the Russian Revolution. And if you want to get uh, just a real good deep dive introductory uh, level. Uh, it's essentially worth an introductory uh, college course on uh, Russian history. I highly recommend his uh, series on the uh, on the Russian podcast uh, on the Russian Revolution. I just recommend his series in general, but the Russian Revolution podcast that he's in the midst of is a particularly uh, good look at uh, Russian politics, Russian political culture. It's where I derived the. Uh, nationalism, orthodoxy, autocracy, uh, trivecta uh, from uh, that was from his podcast, and so just very useful in uh, helping us develop our thinking about Russia. If you want to take a look at how Russia went through the Cold War, came out of the Cold War, and interacted with the United States throughout that, uh, I highly recommend the documentary Commanding Heights. Uh, this came out in 2002, so it came out right in that period of time where we actually thought that we could you know, build a more open, honest relationship with Russia. But at the same time, Russia was clearly not thinking the same thing. So the timing at when that documentary came out is pretty, uh, pretty unique. Uh, but essentially, it's a documentary on the rise of the world economy. Uh, it's a fantastic three-part documentary. And uh, it's based on the book Commanding Heights by Daniel Jurgen and George Stanislaw. Uh, and Daniel Jurgen actually got permission from the, uh, from the production company to post the documentary in its entirety on his YouTube channel. So it is there on YouTube for you to see. And I will uh, post those links uh, in the show notes as well, because it, it's a highly recommended uh, documentary, well worth it to just kind of wrap our heads around the complexity of our globalized economy, how it was built, where it came from, and the major countries that interact with it. And then if you want something of more entertainment value that still gives you an insight into uh, Russian uh, politics, Russian history, Russia's view of its own history. Uh, there's the uh, there's the television series Katerina on Amazon Prime. Uh, this is a Russian produced uh, miniseries, actually television series, because I think there's three seasons up there now on uh, Catherine the Great. 
and who she was. And it's it's unique because it is a Russian series about Russian history. Uh, typically in American uh, media, we basically get a sense of Russia and Russian culture and Russian history through a heavily mediated Western lens. And this particular TV series gives us an opportunity to see Russian history and a Russian view of its own politics uh, of one of its great czars uh, through its own, through kind of like Russia's uh, perspective. And so it's a very useful and entertaining, honestly, entertaining um, television series on that basis. So uh, that's that's what I got for you in terms of resources. There's plenty out there. I mean, when you have a 40-year Cold War, uh, it produces a lot of literature and thought and um, and content on uh, on Russia. And so there's plenty out there to avail yourselves of. And then if you just want more regular uh, quick hits, updates on U.S.-Russia relations, I frequently uh, address them in my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. And you can uh, go to uh, Tim talks politics, Tim talks politics.substacks.com, uh, to sign up for the weekly brief there. Uh, a subscription helps the show and, uh, it also gets you a, a weekly, uh, brief on, um, major events and, uh, news around the world. And Russia's an actor that factors, uh, quite a bit in many of those, uh, events. And so you hear about them quite a lot there. <laughs> I think that's all I got for you guys today. So, uh, in the meantime, and as we anticipate shifting into a uh, into kind of a more American politics uh, centric conversation on this podcast in the coming weeks, I hope you enjoyed these discussions, these kind of like mini case studies on America's relation with some of its major competitors and adversaries in the world. And uh, maybe uh, next go around, we'll take a look at uh, some of America's relationships with its close allies. Uh, because uh, sometimes that is something that's often taken for granted and we want to understand uh, kind of how we interact with close friends as well. So until next time, enjoy your week, enjoy your day, or uh, enjoy your evening wherever you are when you listen to this. I hope you're doing well. Catch you later. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.